Now, NDE Radio, a weekly exploration of near-death experiences and similar encounters with the other side. Now, here's your host, Lee Whitting. Welcome to NDE Radio with Lee Whitting. Whether you're listening on TalkZone, my podcast, through the archives of our ad-free shows on our YouTube channel, or connected through the incredible content of our Facebook page. Two of the most interesting interviews I did back in 2017 were with Robin Aisha Lansong, a multiple near-death survivor whose experiences opened her creativity, healing music, and empathic knowing in ways she shares with the world today. When Robin was eight years old, an American man abducted her and took her to Rhodesia, now Zimbabwe. He eventually abandoned her there, but she was taken in and cared for by the people of a small tribal village. Shortly after our first interview in March of 2017, Robin went back to Zimbabwe some 40 years after her kidnapping to rediscover the people and the land where her amazing adventure had taken place. Weeks after her return to the U.S. in June of 2017, we were able to do a second interview about what she had learned there. This program is a compilation of those two amazing interviews and in anticipation of a future program, on the spiritually transformative experiences she has undergone since then. Robin has been a visual artist, medicine singer, craniosacral therapist, and health intuitive. She has given thousands of healing sessions. Her Loving Bravely Part 1 audiobook and some of her beautiful artwork can be ordered from her website, www.robinlandsong.com. Robin Aisha Lansong, welcome to NDE Radio. Hi, thanks, Lee. Great to be here. Oh, it's wonderful to have you here. Robin, you had such an intriguing experience early on in your life. Perhaps you could begin there and and, and uh, tell us how that led to your, your first NDE. Okay, thanks, Lee. Uh, well, I'll begin my story by just giving some context. I was growing up on the East Coast, and it was 1977 when I was abducted. Um, the kind of circumstances of how that took place is I was growing up in a family who were um, not really capable of protecting me, and I, I had some neglect around being uh, kept safe. And so there was a house in our neighborhood that tended to gather unsafe people, and one of the people from that house spotted me and chose me to abduct and the interesting context that we're still researching right now and don't have confirmation on these details, but it seems it's possible that he was a, maybe a Vietnam veteran and mm. some of those people were being uh, recruited to go over and fight in the Rhodesian War for the Rhodesian government side. And so the timing seems to work out that there was an advertisement in Soldier of Fortune magazine um, that was recruiting and kind of saying, come be a man among men and fight with us. And so that came out in the spring of 1977, and I was abducted uh, about a month later in June. And so I was, uh, some of the details about the abduction, I was uh, drugged, and so I don't actually remember um, how he transported me out of the country because I was not conscious. Um, but when I woke up again, I was, uh, on a military base, the abductor was in a military uniform, and and you know as you can imagine, he was quite mentally unwell, and I was in danger, and I I really drew upon my experience of already surviving abuse 
to really learn how to cope with that situation and kind of handle how to survive in that in that days with him. And my as best as we can put together, and again, we're going to about to do a return trip to Africa to help us in the research of this. Um, best as I can put together, probably I was with him um, during the time he was in his training, and then I'm surmising that he needed to get rid of me when it came time for him to actually uh, go into the field. So he, I was given to another man, and that man took me on a bus, and the bus actually broke down um, very much out in a bush, in a rural area. And I had actually been assaulted from the man who abducted me, and my ribs were broken. So mm. trying to walk and, and walk and keep up with adults, just I couldn't do it. And so the man who was um, had taken me on the bus, he was trying to kind of push me along and make me go faster, and he pushed on my ribs. So I did what most eight-year-olds would do, and I bit him. And that broke the little bit of, tiny bit of rapport we had, and so he pulled away from me, and he actually walked on and left me behind. So there I am, eight years old, uh, with broken ribs. I don't have food, I don't have water, and I'm left behind out in the bush. And so at that point, I was so bereft and my self-esteem was so low, I thought it would just be mercy to sit down and just wait to die in the sun. And so that's pretty much what I did. I sat down and gave up and waited to not be here anymore. And what happened was uh, a truck full of soldiers came along and they were fully armed and that was uh, quite a threat, and I thought, okay, now this is how I'm going to die. Um, but instead of shooting me, they actually picked me up and put me on the truck, and I was very confused why they were doing this. And again, in my research now, what I can put together is there were several parties happening. Um, there was the Re- whole Rhodesian War, Bush War going on, and there were several parties, and one of the middle parties um, was black Africans who were not as extreme and so they might have seen me as a white orphaned child and decided to try and get me to the nearest place of people that might be sympathetic to taking care of me. Uh, and, of course, they needed to conserve their gas. So they didn't want to take me really far. So they took me to the uh, edge of a village and basically dropped me off and pointed the direction of go to the village and then left. And it was getting dark, and I heard barking dogs near the village, so that was, I decided I didn't want to go near the village when I heard the scary dogs there. And I just found a tree to call home, the biggest tree I could find, and kind of tucked myself in the thin roots and called that home for the night. In the morning, I heard the most incredible singing voices coming from the village, and I made my way over to them. And they gave me food and water. And I was very cautious about actually really letting anyone get near me because I didn't want to be trapped or held captive. And But the people of this village were so open-hearted and had such joy in their singing and in their faces that I really trusted that I would be okay. And the real transforming moment for me was when the children really welcomed me in. 
they gathered around me, and I'm not sure if they actually seen a Caucasian person before, but they were touching my hair and touching my skin. And they took me to the fire circle, and one of the girls began to tell a story about me, and it's in uh, not in English, of course. So they were all speaking their native language, which is Venda. And and they and she told a creation story. I believe that it was about me arriving to her village. And as they did this, they put ash from the fire circle on my white skin. And by the end of her story, I was welcomed in, and they, all the children joined in and putting ash in my hair and ash on my skin and making me look more like them. And it was the most incredible, welcoming, and seeing and playful experience of my life. And, wow. and to be so kind of bereft and broken from the abduction experience and then to be welcomed in like this was almost more than I could take in. But I I welcomed their joy and I welcomed their laughter. Mm-hmm. And what happened next again was in a critical moment of beginning to feel alive again. One of the women came and sat down and watched all this and she began to sing to me and called me over to her and her singing was so resonant that it was really filling me up and nourishing me from the insides. And again, I was very afraid of adults. I was afraid to be hit or captured. But her presence and her love was so trustworthy that I allowed her to take hold of me. And and her singing was restoring me and healing me. And I literally collapsed forward in her arms. And it was the strongest experience of mothering I'd ever had in my life. So these people welcomed me in, and I became part of uh, the dances and the making food. I learned how to plant the seeds to grow food. And I, I really felt that I had found family and that I now belonged. And the again, the uh, Rhodesian War was going on, and one day this kind of very idyllic experience was really broken when uh, the guerrilla soldiers came into the village. And I was immediately hidden. Um, it was a, the guerrilla soldiers where um, the war was about trying to get land back for farming and kind of create equity again because the um, British colonies had taken a lot of the land for farming. And so the yes. guerrilla soldiers were doing very extreme measures to try and get land back. Um, so being a white person there was a very unsafe time. And so I was hidden when they came in, and it really changed the tone of what was happening in the village. Before then, it had felt very safe, and after that, it, it, there was a tension. And uh, you know, it was kind of shown to me, don't go beyond the village. We don't know when they'll come back. And several days later, kind of in my child play, and not necessarily really paying attention to how far I'd gone from the village, I went to the river where we often swam. And I was there playing in my in my own world, and I heard the sound of the truck across the way. And I looked up, and it was the guerrilla soldiers. And I was by myself, and there was no one there to shelter or hide me. And so I froze like a rabbit, hoping they wouldn't see me. And... I watched. I remember watching the tr- the truck tires slow down as they were 
kind of scanning the area, and I saw the eyes of the driver spot me. And he called back to the soldiers in the back. And before I could turn and run, the soldier had brought up his rifle, um, aimed at me, and I really remember the moment where the gun barrel became just a circle, and I knew he was directly lined up at me. And and the confusion for me to be honored and so loved by the people of the village, and of course in my eight-year-old mind, I had no idea what the difference was between the black soldiers I was looking at and the people of my village and why he would be aiming a gun at me. And so I was in mid-turn when he pulled the trigger and the bullet grazed the top of my head and the force of it was enough to knock me off my feet and knock me to the ground. And I began bleeding to death. Um, For those who don't know, uh, a head wound is a place of the body that bleeds very strongly. And and what happened for me as I was starting to um, go unconscious from blood loss was that my life force really it went out beyond my skin in a wave out beyond my body and rushed back in. It did another wave that went further out. And I knew if I didn't gather that back in and even it out of my body that I was dying. And it was beyond my control. It rushed back in, and it was like a tsunami wave. It just kind of brought everything that I am with it. And it was like there was an open window in the back of my heart, and that my life force just rushed out the back of my heart. And so I had left my body, and what happened next is that I was someplace different. I was no longer by the river. I was no longer with my body. And that I was very confused and very disoriented. And and I felt very scattered. I kind of make the analogy that I was like a bowl of marbles all spread out. And I had no center reference point. And, and so what happened next is I felt touch to my cheek. And then I could even identify that I, oh, I have a face. And this touch was feminine and loving. And it gathered back in my sense of self and a sense of place and some sense of form. I can't say I felt like I had a body because I felt so light and I thought I've kind of become like Casper the ghost. And this and the touch kind of t- um, was on the other side of my face and that gathered me back together more and I could see again. And I could see her face and she was dark-skinned And in my mind, she was made of earth and brown earth. And when I was able to reorient even a little bit more, I felt like she, I recognized her as like a sister that had always been there to welcome me back in the times I had come to this place before. And and her touch helped me forgive myself because I felt like it was my fault getting shot, that I had gone out of the village and that I'd made a mistake and it was my fault. And with her touch, I knew that I wasn't my mistakes and that I could forgive myself for going outside of the village. And and I could now see beyond her and that it was her sister was also there and 
the two of them had always been there to welcome me when I had come home to this place. And I was beginning to realize I was free of my body and I had come home to where I had been originally created. And they pointed their arms over and I saw a huge golden sphere. And I knew if I stepped inside that golden sphere, I would be fully restored, I would be renewed, and all all my injuries would be gone, and I would be fully refreshed, and it would never diminish this golden sphere. And so I began moving with them towards the golden sphere. But then I remembered my the people of my village and how they had named me, giving me a naming ceremony. And I finally had family. I finally had people in place. And I didn't want to leave them. And I knew if I stepped in that golden sphere, I wouldn't be able to go back to them. Hmm. So I hesitated, and I had a dilemma. And I really, my longing to be back with the people of my village turned me away from that sphere and even drew me away from my two sisters that were there to welcome me. And and so this draw to be with them kind of drew me away from that scene, and I had this sense of falling backwards. And I fell backwards away from that warmth and that brilliance and that light and away from my two big sisters. And I felt like there was curtains uh, kind of softening my fall backwards. And when I landed, I was in a different place. And it was kind of dank and overcast and wet, sort of like a, like a, maybe a cold day in Ireland. And, and I was in a stone stairway, a very old stone stairway, and it was kind of, the stone was cold and it was, um, there was moss and it was very moist. And I had trouble getting up because it was slippery. And there was a, stairwell off to my right and so many people had walked down that stairwell that the stones were worn down in the center and I didn't know where I was or how I'd gotten there and then suddenly there was an old man next to me and he was offering his arm to help me up and I, I just felt very resistant to needing his help and I wanted to be independent and I wanted to be able to get up on my own and I tried several times but I felt very weak and kind of shaky, and so I went ahead and accepted his help to get up. And he was far sturdier than I imagined he would be when I was just looking at him. He kind of looked like he was on death's door. But he helped me up, and he encouraged me that we were going to go down these other set of stone stairs. And I didn't know where we were going, but I trusted that he did. And so I went with him down these stone stairs. And there was something that was dripping on my shoulder. And I wiped to see what it was. And I held up my hand and I could see my own blood. And I realized I was bleeding to death from my head. And I showed it to him. And he he wasn't alarmed. He knew. And he said, you know, kind of it encouraged him to um, help me down the stairs faster. And so I continued on with him. And then we got to a stone archway. And it was dark inside this uh, archway. It looked like we were entering into a cave. And I, and I thought to myself, wow, I really had it better when I was up in that kind of light with my two sisters. It was brilliant. It was warm. And now here I am going into this dark cave. But, 
but he really encouraged me, and I was uh, holding on to his arm. So he led me into this dark cave, and and what was there was, uh, I, again, I was eight years old, so my life review didn't have a lot of history to it. But having survived a lot of abuse at that point, what was in that cave was the sound of my own repressed emotion from the abuse that I had survived. And what started happening is that I heard my own screaming bouncing off the walls in that cave. And I started having images of the adults who had abused me to my life in that point. And I wanted to run, but he held me steady. And I looked into his face, and he was a presence of steadiness and calm. And in myself, I had tremendous fear of seeing these abusers' faces and hearing my own screams. And I realized he wasn't trying to fix the situation for me. And and what I was healing in that moment is the, as many children do who are abused, that I thought there was something so bad in me that made the adults abuse me. And looking in his eyes, I realized there was nothing wrong with me and that I that there wasn't my fault that these adults had abused me. And when I had that realization, the screaming stopped. And I accepted that I was scared by them, and I, and I did want to scream, and that I was okay. I wasn't wrong for being abused, and I wasn't wrong for having a reaction to the abuse. And from there, he continued to lead me through the dark cave, and we came out to a, a cliff edge, And in that opening, the night sky was so filled with stars. They were like living relatives filling the sky. And I could feel my relationship and his relationship to all those stars. And again, I had a sense of place and a sense of belonging. And my trust in him at this point was so strong, I would follow him wherever he led. And so telepathically, I asked him, where are we going next? And he nodded his head that we're, we're going to jump off this cliff edge. And I put my hands in his, and together we leapt, leapt off that cliff edge. And the falling was gentle. It was like we became birds with wings. And I suddenly realized that he could go anywhere and that he chose to come be with me to lead me through my dark cave and that in my Buddhist language he was a bodhisattva who came to guide me through my suffering and to help me make meaning of it so I didn't get lost in trying to avoid it. And we continued falling like birds and my trust in him was continuing to grow and and telepathically directly in my heart he spoke and he said to me, this is dying this gentle following, this being in relation to the stars, this feeling of belonging to the whole universe, this is dying. And we continued to fall down, and it became morning sky, and there again was the golden sphere. And I I looked across there, and I knew I could go there, but I instead, and he... He trusted my path, and he uh, was going to just 
trust me to go on my own way. And uh, and instead of going to the golden sphere, I went to a field of grass. And again, I was seeking to find my African family, which I was not able to. And in that field, I met uh, what I call my royal shepherd. And he was the presence of peace. And in his presence, I could resolve my longing for my African family. And he showed me in a vision that we are all connected and that we're, there are living lines connecting every person. And from there, we went and uh, through, went through a tunnel and I viewed my body from above. We came out from that tunnel and I was above the scene where I was dying. And the woman who had become like my mother, my mommy Etan, had found my body and was rocking my body and singing. And I was viewing the scene from above. And my love for her was absolute. And I wanted to comfort her and tell her I was okay and I was fully taken care of by all these beings. And I was going to journey onward to the great heart and go home to my original source. So I journeyed on further to the great heart and was becoming more peaceful and more purified. And any hurts or injuries were fully being cleared from my body and my presence. But she had begun to sing to me and she was singing a calling song. And that was making it through the veils that had been closing behind me between the, you know, this land where of the living and where I was on the other side of the veil. And her song was so strong, and she had called on the ancestors to remind me of my purpose. And so I was crossing forward into freedom from pain, going home to my original source, and her song found me. And when her song reached me, it reminded me that I am also a medicine singer. I am also to sing my healing song to others and that I hadn't done my purpose. And when that song touched me, I had a choice. I could continue on to the great heart and be reunified with my original source or I could turn around and come back and live my purpose to sing my medicine songs as she was doing for me. And so my desire to be part of the choir of medicine singers turned me around and I came came back to physical life. And you know, as I came back, I questioned my choice because I got, began to feel the physical pain of having been shot. But I came back to my body and she held me strong and I was returned back to the village. And uh, what happened next is uh, is a painful part of the story that um, just several days after the after my return, when I was still physically recovering, that the guerrilla soldiers came back and they attacked my village. And in my attempt to escape um, because I was still recovering, I actually, um, just the act of running, I collapsed, which in the end may have saved my life because I was already down while the shooting was happening. And so I um, didn't no longer look like a living target. 
and I am not actually sure how many people of my village survived um, because I was unconscious and people from a um, we're still doing kind of research to uh, clarify all this understanding but the best as we know from the research we have now um, people from a nearby village found me unconscious um, took me and cared for me and knowing that I was very unsafe being there they took me across the river to um, get me out of Rhodesia and to the South African side and gave me to some white farmers who they thought could do a better job of getting me back to the U.S. Um, from there, I was hospitalized in a whites-only hospital in South Africa. And then from there, I was returned to the U.S. Thank you so much, Robin, for your amazing story so far. Now, three months later, we were able to do a second interview with Robin just after her return from Zimbabwe. Robin, tell us about Zimbabwe. So this was my first return trip in 40 years to now Zimbabwe. I had been there at eight years old in 1977. And, and what was really kind of overall remarkable for me is that I've been holding all this as memory for 40 years. Mm-hmm. And so to go back and meet the people again, be on the land again, find the exact locations shifted something for me that I, I still hardly have words for. We've only been back about two and a half weeks. And so the moment we were, we had been there about um, four days, and we kind of chose to stay in a, in a place not quite at the key location. Um, but as we were driving into the key location where the um, villages that the people took me in and where all the events of war happened, where I had my near-death experience, as we were coming in, we're driving in in a vehicle on a very bumpy dirt road, very like lots of kind of potholes and um, kind of difficult to navigate. And coming out, uh, we had I had seen a, like a four-minute video of Miami, and so I knew that she was the one who was part of the second family that took care of me. And I think she had not seen a picture of me as an adult. I don't believe anybody had shown her that. So we were we were driving into where we were going to be staying right next to the um, to the lands where she lives, and and again this donkey cart is coming towards us. Since John's in the front seat, he spots her and says to Vanessa, who's our host, "Is that Miami?" So Vanessa stops the vehicle. Their donkey cart stops. We both literally get out of our vehicles and run to each other. Oh. Forty years we haven't seen each other. She doesn't speak English. I don't speak Venda. And we embrace. And she's a strong woman, and she practically picks me off my feet. <laughs> and the validation and the homecoming and the reunion that ran through my whole body, I was speechless. I was weeping. And, and then she kind of you know, stopped rocking me so much, and she was petting my head and saying, sorry, sorry, sorry. <laughs> and... And then she bent me forward and she checked my head where the gunshot wound would have been 40 years ago. Mm-hmm. And I knew exactly what she was doing. And that for her, it's been 40 years of not knowing what happened to me. And that, you know, just recently left about July when we, when we found her and then she got news that I had actually lived. You know, that was her first knowing of what had happened to me because when they... Um, sent me across the river to the South African side, they had no way of knowing what had happened to me. So 
So she had just, you know, her family had taken great risk to care for me. And, and so this was her first knowing in her body that I was okay and I had lived. Was there any way you could tell her about your near-death experience? Yes, we, we got to spend a great deal of time with her, and we did, uh, we did interviews, um, and so we had tr- people who were translating back and forth. And, and that's an interesting part. I, I didn't get so much get into the near-death with her, um, because um, partly because of the challenge in the translating in terms of concepts about that, but we were really there to kind of get the context of the whole story, and so our focus was on more... Um, Kind of the, the kind of literal facts of the story in terms of like I was here, she found me here. You know, this is what her family did. This is how her family um, hid me. So we did focus more on those things. But the great thing is I now have connections with the people who can do translations, and so I can, you know, we've established this relationship, and we can continue to inform her, and she can answer more of my questions as they come up. There's something about this story that, uh, you know, every once in a while it crosses my mind when I hear descriptions of the other side, why we're spending our time here <laughs> at all. And then a story like yours reinforces my understanding of why we spend time here, mm-hmm. what we're supposed to be doing. Yeah, and I think it's been writing it all down and in my manuscript that also helped me put that together to see that I went from a very abusive family where I wasn't bonded and I wasn't receiving mothering to being abducted, which was extremely traumatic, but then being taken in by this village and the culture of it. it, We have to shift our Western American thinking in terms of we often have a family unit and children are very much, um, connected just to their parents, you know, and maybe some extended family. But it's a different concept in Africa that other people are raising your children. And in, in some traditions, literally, when your child is young, you know, the girl goes to the aunt or the boy goes to the uncle to be raised. So, so I realized their cultural notion of just taking a child in because I'm a child needing mothering was very strong and that that tradition that they have of, you know, raising a child, even if it's not your biological child, is really the factor that saved my life. Mm. And, and then in writing my, writing my manuscript, my husband at one point came to me and he's an amazing content editor, developmental editor. And, and he said to me, okay, you keep telling me about you're loved by these, these six beings you meet on the other side but you're using the same words. Tell me how they were each different. And tell me, you know, what was unique about the first being and the second being and the third being. And so I went back to work and I really differentiated the unique factors of what they transformed in me and just got beyond using the words love and embrace. And I, and I handed it back to him and he said, now I get it. Now I get that these beings were never going to let you go. They were going to receive you wherever you were at. Because when I first crossed over, I was resistant. I wanted to go back because I had finally had found family and the people of this village. Yes. And, and I didn't want to be, I didn't want to be dead. 
And as beautiful as it was, I, I was resistant. And so I actually kind of went into a darker realm because that resistance needed to be worked through. And, and so what happened, each being met me where I was, moved me forward through that resistance, through that thinking I had to make it on my own, which is very understandable for being an eight-year-old who had survived what I'd survived, to working, helping me work through to receive greater and greater levels of love. And so by the end, I was, my capacity to receive the magnitude of love that I was being offered by these beings was incredibly different than when I first crossed over. And so the being, I think that... I was going to say, the being that you described as a bodhisattva who took you through an, into a cave and through a life review... Mm-hmm. Um, was that was scary, scary at first, but then you came to recognize how comforting and kind his intentions were. Right. I, yeah, I never thought he was doing anything to me because what was happening in this dark cave was all the screaming I had repressed when I was being abused in the U.S. All of a sudden, that that needed to be purified, so it was echoing off all the rocks. And every time I'd held back a facial expression when I was being abused, because that would make my abuse worse, that was in the cave. And so it very much was, by many people's definition, a hell realm. But it was my own self and my own emotion that I had repressed that I needed to bring home to myself. I needed to integrate back in so I could go forward as, as a whole being. So as difficult as it was, that bringing that pain and the anguish and myself home was really essential in being able to then receive greater amounts of love. And that leap off the cliff, so dramatic and yet so liberating, I would think. I wanted to ask you too about the, the being you described as a royal shepherd mm-hmm. and, and what that, uh, what, tell us about that. Um, so, especially with my perspective now, so I'll give, I'll give listeners a little bit more context about my story. Okay. So, so I was in this village, I was being accepted and loved and cared for and being taught the singing, I was being taught how to listen to the song in the land, because the ancestors are in the land, and to listen there for guidance on how to live, how to plant, how to be kind to another. And, and so there was a, um, and this is the benefit of going back to the actual location. So the village I was in, the group of huts I was in, was kind of protected on um, kind of two and a half sides by uh, a stone outcropping. And so it's a very held group of huts. So, but on the other side of that stone hill, um, there was a battle happened. And so I had wandered too far from the village that direction and I was, I was shot, and the bullet grazed the top of my head, and then I began to die of blood loss and shock. And, and so it kind of moving forward, I'll come back to the, that piece in the near death, but it was my, um, one of the mothers that had been so good to me that found me and sang to me a calling song. She was calling me back with her medicine song. And her song, she called on the ancestors to join her in her singing. And so that made the song so powerful it crossed through the veils to where I was on the other side in death. 
And when I heard that song, I remembered my purpose was to also sing my medicine song to people. And I hadn't done that purpose, so I came back. And so what happened is they, they took me back to the village and put um, medicine on my head and, and did a singing prayer for me. And I was uh, recovering and still weak, but doing okay. Um, and But then the soldiers came back and attacked the village. And in my attempt to escape, uh, I collapsed. And the interesting thing is, I have now re- allowed myself to remember that because I've allowed myself to remember more about the attack on the village. And, and this is a key point, that sometimes when we have trauma, there's also the gift in there. And that sometimes when we're most worn down and most broken open is when our strengths, our potential is revealed. And so I had another near-death experience from collapsing then. And the painful part is that it's, it looks like I'm the only survivor of that attack on the village. Mm-hmm. And so what was key in my first near-death experience, that the first time I was shot, was that the first two women who greeted me were two black women that were very familiar, but I couldn't name. And I now realized that two days later, my two mamas were going to be killed. But they were already there greeting me in my first near-death experience before the attack on the village. Oh. Interesting. So that is very interesting in terms of, you know, our concepts around time and, you know, what is our relationship with the other side and what is the future and what is the past. And And the possibility that we could be in both places at once. Yeah, and I, I just had this realization, I think I gave my talk down in Arizona, and, and somebody asked me a question that kind of pressed me to really, really evaluate who those two women were, and I realized that, you know, it was two days before their death, but they were already the ones greeting me when I had my death experience. And the, so, I, think, so, I think you described them as older sisters at one point in our first interview. Yeah. And uh, I thought, I wonder if this could have—they could have been older sisters from a previous life. I I have had an astrology reading where the person said that before this lifetime, I've had very many tribal lifetimes, and that I had known what it was like to belong and to be part of you know a very uh, intact culture of of village and tribe, and mm-hmm. that that it was kind of in this lifetime that I was experiencing abuse and where I didn't have a sense of belonging and family. And you also mentioned that coming out of the place you were in where it was wet, you described it like Ireland. And I thought, well, there were tribal, <laughs> tribal situations in Ireland in, in, past, uh, in the past that you might have been a part of that as well. Right, yeah, isn't that interesting? And so to fill readers in, um, kind of when I went into that darker realm because I was resistant to you know being on the other side, I kind of fell into a dark, um, to a, into a, a stone stairwell that was very ancient. The steps were worn down, and the the sky was dark, and it felt to me kind of what I would picture as as Ireland on a kind of a dark day without much sunshine. And what's interesting is that I recently did my genetic uh, DNA test. Mm. And I almost fell off my chair when the first report said Robin Lansong Irish. 
and <laughs> never discussed in my family. Scottish was discussed, but never has anyone uh, from my parents or grandparents ever said anything about Irish. So the fact that that was a very large marker in my genetics was <laughs> a mm. big surprise to me. Do you know the legends about the uh, 10 northern tribes from Israel merging, crossing, escaping from the Assyrians, crossing the Caucasus Mountains, and merging with the Indo-Europeans to become the Celts? Oh. There is evidence in Ireland and Scotland of, um, of uh, David's harp, for instance, signs of um, the Hebrew culture having been transferred up to Ireland and Scotland. So mm-hmm. that, that there, it's a whole whole other story that we don't have to get into now, but right. your your roots could go, uh, you know, back to the Middle East as well. Right. Uh, now, the royal shepherd, mm-hmm. um, you know, when you say something like that, it, it's almost a Jesus figure. And I thought I'd ask you more about that. Yeah, that's a great question. And so... My aim in writing my book is just to write my observations as a child and not put any of my adult interpretation. It's been a really interesting writing challenge to keep the language kind of within an eight-year-old vocabulary and eight-year-old perspective. And so so I experienced this being he was... And, and the funny part is when I was writing about it, I thought, oh, this isn't very important. And my husband said, mm, I think you're holding something back here. I want you to go write this down. And, and he would interview me. And so he said, well, what did he look like? And I said, well, you know, he had a beard and, and he had a robe on that was kind of tan white and it was a thick kind of felted fabric and kind of wide sleeves. And I said, and he had a, a sheep herder staff with that curve at the top. And my husband looked at me and started smiling. <laughs> <laughs> I wasn't raised Christian. That wasn't really part of my upbringing. And, and I said, why? Is that somebody important? <laughs> and he started laughing and said, the Lord is my shepherd. And I said, oh. oh. <laughs> and, and at that moment, I really got it of, I did see Jesus. That, that was Jesus. And... And that has been a real shift for me in, in consciousness and in relationship. And again, I'm writing the book in a way where I'm not naming it that because I want everybody to have their own interpretation. Mm-hmm. And what was really heartening to me is I, had, I hired somebody from South Africa to do a round of edits on my book. And he wrote back to me and said, you have just described this African pharaoh. And I said, perfect. That's exactly what I want. Everybody, like, I'm just stating what I observed, and everybody brings what's meaningful to them to the images. You have um, put together a beautiful art book called Art Inspired by My Death Experience. And I wanted to ask you about, first of all, has your, has your journey that you to, to Zimbabwe uh confirmed the art that you uh that you've drawn or do you expect that it will change future drawings in any way oh that'll be interesting like i said i've only been back two and a half weeks and i haven't done a drawing yet my big uh, project is to now integrate the facts and the details i learned into the manuscript into 
finish the epilogue. And so I haven't done a drawing yet. I'm imagining it won't really change my style too much because um, that's been pretty consistent. Mm. But uh, And so I never, I don't um, do my drawings from a plan. I do my drawings from receiving instructions from divinity and bowing down, surrendering. So I can't really say ahead of time like what the drawing is going to actually be like. So I'd have to answer that for you after the next drawing I do. Okay. What was, what was really just incredibly validating and helped me bring pieces of myself home was while I was there, I got to be with other people who I had shared history with. And that, you know, people in the U.S. can be, listen and be validating and supportive. But there, I was with other survivors of the Rhodesian War. I was with people who knew exactly what I was talking about. And and one of the moments we had uh, Miami over for dinner, and there was another person who had helped find her and kind of make the connection of, um, to the story. And so we were, through a translator, we were telling them about that I do this thingy medicine. And and it came about in the conversation because uh, Kali, who was also, who went through the war, he said to the translator, John, my husband, is influencing Robin. And I knew through translation what he meant was that he was energetically supporting me, kind of his masculine container was supporting me. And so that brought up for us about what happens when John and I do the singing medicine and that it's this combination of masculine and feminine really relaxing in to allow divinity to sink through us. And so at dinner, we went ahead and stood up and did the singing medicine for them. And they smiled and they nodded and they said, yes, you got that from here. You, you ah, excellent. Yeah. <laughs> the culture influenced you and you got that from here. And I thought, ah, oh, thank God, because I'm, I'm rather strange in America that I do the singing medicine. And for there, it's not strange at all. It's totally normal. And I could just feel my Zimbabwean self and my American self that I'm both. And that even though I was there a, sh- a short time, like around two months, it was so intense and, and so influential on me because it had so much trauma and so much love that, you know, it was like 10 years of worth of experience packed into two months. And I'm eight years old, so I'm a you know, the impression of who I am and my worldview is high, is very strong at that time. And so they also told me that when the second family found me after the attack, that one of the really powerful uh, kind of religious people who did singing prayer sang over me to help me heal and very much focused on me. And when I heard that, it was so validating and I thought, He didn't just sing and heal the wound on my head. He wrote and revealed my purpose and one of my strengths and one of my gifts. And he essentially activated that gift in me, as well as the the mothers in the first village. So, Lee, I can hardly get across to you how much confidence I gained in in who I am and that I make sense. Well, you're singing... The singing that I heard you do with John at the last IONS conference was uh, very powerful, and and I can understand why it would be so healing 
for people that need it. I would love to take you into uh, the hospital where I'm a chaplain and just have you go from room to room singing to the people who, who, who need that. Tell me the, what uh, turtles mean to you. <laughs> oh, um, so I have the, the two turtle drawings that I've done so far. And, and so there's the creation story in um, different mythologies about that the world rests on the back of a turtle. And and so the Mama Africa turtle drawing I have is is that my world rested on her back. That you know one of the women in the village who mothered me so much that because I was so desperate for mothering and her capacity to give it was so big, I just really leaned my whole being into her. And Lee, here's the fascinating part: when we were on at the location of where that first village was, and I got to bow down and do my prayers and give my thanks. And I felt them, the people of that village, rush into me. And it was incredibly healing. And when we walked around the area, we went to an, a spot right across from the village where there were rocks that looked like the back of a turtle shell. Uh-huh. And John looked at me and he pointed out, he said, no wonder you draw turtles. <laughs> wow. That's just one aspect of how this trip has completed the circle for you, isn't it? Yeah. Yeah, it was peace after peace fell into place. It was incredibly validating. Robin, thanks so much for these conversations. Now, listeners, here's a special treat for those of you curious about Robin's voice. This singing was recorded as a source for healing. Thanks again to Robin, and thanks for listening. If you'd like to hear this show again or any of our more than 500 archived ad-free NDE interviews, go to TalkZone's NDE radio site and hit the Past Shows button, or go to our YouTube channel, NDE Radio with Lee Whitting, where you can subscribe to and comment on the complete NDE radio library. And be sure to check out our NDE radio Facebook page. Just search NDE Radio with Lee Whitting on your Facebook app. And listen next Monday, 11 a.m. Eastern at Talk Zone for more NDE Radio. I'm your host, Lee Whitting, saying once again, thanks for listening. <laughs>